When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your ghost, guest, host. I'm your host. Here's my guest, Paul Rossi. Paul Rossi is, well, was a math teacher at Grace Church High School, and he began to question the encroachment of critical race theory throughout that high school, stood up to it, and got some pretty strong backlash from the institution. He then recently, on April 13th, published an article on the Common Sense with Barry Weiss substack, which kind of opened up that can of worms of bringing a lot of attention to bear on this high school. He was recently interviewed by Jordan Peterson, a Canadian psychologist, and that interview very thoroughly covers Paul Rossi's experience. If you want to learn more about Paul Rossi's experience, I recommend you go and watch that interview. If you've already seen that interview and want to know more about Paul Rossi, then this interview, I think, fits nicely together with Jordan's work. So without further ado, here is Paul Rossi, man of the month, I think. You've surpassed your 15 minutes. You went into an hour and now. Has it been that long? Is, are, Something. Do you, does it feel like a, you're kind of a cause celebre? I don't uh I don't know. There's a lot of things popping in, in this in this space. There's uh, Andrew Gutman. Uh, there's um, some other people are speaking up and things are happening. Uh, might be just part of a larger story. That's what it feels like. I was thinking about your story, and it's covered very thoroughly in your Jordan Peterson interview. So maybe we could touch on it lightly. Um, but I highly recommend people check out that. Jordan does a very good job of pulling the details out of you in a very powerful manner. Um, but I was thinking about the the commonality between your story. So you were working for Grace High School, and then there was a kerfuffle around anti-racist training. You stood up. Uh, there was some tension there. And then you, are you – did you lose employment? Are you – Yeah, I mean, I'm – I guess I would say I'm all but fired, which means my classes have been reassigned. My advisory is reassigned. So I have no more teaching duties. I haven't heard from the administration about my employment status at all. I did check my account and I did get paid a few days ago. So I'm still getting paid. Kind of like that. Um, I'm I'm kind of thinking they're going to pay out the rest of my contract, which term, which ends at August 31st. Uh, If they don't, um, I may be able to do something about that. We'll see. Um, Hmm. but, um, yeah, I mean, I'm just taking it week by week at this point Mm -hmm. and doing a lot of volunteer work, uh, you know, in my time that now I have available. Yeah. I was, I, I came of, I came of age in a certain respect through a similar, but kind of different story involving Brett Weinstein. Brett Weinstein stood up against a certain 
diversity, equity, and inclusion push within the Evergreen State College. And then time elapsed, the students protested, and the students themselves were uh, the forward guard at that movement. But with regards to what happened with you, it wasn't really the students. It was actually the institution or people in the institution. And it's not, it's kind of a familiar story now. It's just kind of something that happens. You either get on the die train or you get out of the canoe in a way. Yeah, the canoe. I mean, I, I watched the Mike Nana, Mike Nana's story of Evergreen. And I know that that's, you know, that's something that you went through with Brett Weinstein and, uh, Weinstein, 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 fine Weinstein. wine, Weinstein. Yeah. Got it, got it. Yeah. So, and, uh, so yeah. you've been aware of stuff going on outside of your particular high school, just in the college world at large then? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's interesting because something, a connection that I haven't seen anyone make with the Evergreen story is its connection to, to Cornell, which is my alma mater where I went to undergrad in Cornell in 1969, which I think was the early, was sort of the, there's so many parallels between Evergreen and what happened to Cornell in 1969 that, oh, really? it, you know, this story is fascinating. I think you'd really, you'd really enjoy looking into it because you had a group of radical students that took over the student union with bandoliers of ammunition and guns. And the entire campus you know, was set to explode for like a couple nights with, um, you know, violence. There were, there were, uh, you know, the leader of the, of the students that took over the student union went on the air of the, of the college radio station and threatened the lives of faculty to come to their homes. I mean, it was a pretty, pretty insane time. Oh, wow. And, you know, faculty were, you know, literally getting out of town, checking into motels because they were afraid of, you know, repercussions of going against the students. And my father was a law professor at the school at that time. And so he had firsthand stories about what it was like to be a teacher in that, you know, to be a professor in that environment. I think it was his second or third year teaching oh, really? there. Yeah. Uh, there's a facet, there's a great book called Cornell 69, Liberalism and the Crisis of the American University. And, you know, I recommend it. It's, it's an excellent and very balanced, I think, retelling of the events of that time, and you know how what the you know what were the events that led up to it, what were the immediate causes, what was the aftermath, and um, it's an interesting story. But yeah, it really reminded me of that. When was that published? That particular book? That was published. I'm uh, looking at it now. Eighties, nineties. Aughts. It was fairly recent, I think. It was more recent okay. than that. Okay. Um, it's so I was going to say, how long Donald has the American Harris. university system been in crisis? It seems like it's in perpetual crisis. Yeah. Yeah. 2014, the book came out. So, it, And I think some of its source material, there were primary source materials, people who who wrote a book about it as it was happening, which is now an archive, I think, in the in the Cornell Library that did you, you know, it's hard to get access to that, but they were able to get it and, and write a book using that yeah. material. I hope I, all my work ends up in the Evergreen archives. If they, uh, if they last, they're, they're having some pretty terrible times right now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hear are the enrollment and, and endowment, yeah. everything's affected. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, uh, they're finally getting rid of their president and they can't find a new one. They had three finalists drop out. <laughs> Oh, ouch. 
think, yeah. Not, uh, you think it would be a plum job. Like people would be at, le- at least to, to get there, to stay there a little while. But it's a no, mess. Wow. It's a mess. There's so many layers of dysfunction at the place. It's phenomenal. And I've been reporting on it for four years now. I'm nowhere at the end. And they keep on providing me with new dysfunction. So it's kind of this weird niche story that I've uh, kind of found myself in. But it relates, again, it relates to what's happening abroad. And I do... Have you been thinking about... The current climate and the climate of the 60s, a lot of uh, social justice activism was happening then, a lot of militancy was happening back then, a lot of young people trying to change the world and really on fire for that. Um, and it just seems like now the institutions have kind of absorbed the revolutionary rhetoric and are just able to co-opt any sort of revolt and and just completely appease the students and go through this whole process of vilifying the scapegoat. And yeah, yeah, no, and and then there's generational right, so waves. So you have the children of the children of the revolution now, and yeah. then that's working its way through the through the larger society and and you know metastasizing in all the institutions and and that template for accommodationist thinking and co-optation, but also. Um, you know, it, I think you know institutional, institutional moral bankruptcy. I think has a lot to do with it. That since the civil rights movement, the hypocrisy of that, exposing. You know the. Hmm. Um, you know the the. The moral authority of liberalism. You know, oh my gosh, that thing that. We all want back now. It has to be reconstructed in some way. Better, more like in a better way than just polishing the statues of John Stuart Mill or any of, you know, Locke or whoever. Like it has to be re-articulated in an art, in a, with art and culture in a regenerative way. You can't just sort of say, oh, I wish we could, we should go back to the, you know. It's got to be, it's, there's got to mm. be a new idiom. There's got to be a new... It has to be done through art and culture, but I don't, you know. So you're saying that the um, heterodox classical liberal thing mm-hmm. is falling flat? As no, a, I don't uh, think it's falling flat. I think it's just one piece of what's of it's it's the, you know, just like a you know how like a bad uh, uh, no a, a a neighborhood in a city the artists come in first to sort of re re um to to reconstitute. And, and set up shop there and sort of yeah. rebuild the neighborhood. We, the we're soft doing, gentrifiers. Yeah, the soft. So that that's happening now in the intellectual level. But without a cultural, accompanying cultural thing, it's not going to be, it's not going to have the power to affect. I think it needs to have that artistic blood coursing through its veins as well, you know, and you're starting to see that a little bit here and there, but you need, you need a movement, like a cultural yeah, movement yeah. that's uh, to complete the picture, I think. And, you know, that, then you can start to do things like have media organizations and distribution, pla- like Hollywood, right? Like yeah. they'll come to you. If you, if you, if you build it, I think they'll come. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think there's hope in, uh, you were teaching high school or you are teaching high school or you're in the, uh, 
weird gray zone of being a teacher, not teacher of high school. What generation is that? Is that Gen Z, Gen Z yeah. kind of? Yeah. They're this generation. There's all the the height uh, commentary and twingy on the you know social media stuff and that the stuff, uh, but. The uh, ideology of intersectional critical social justice, yada, yada, wokeness, is now being forced on them at every level constantly. And then all their teachers are, are having to say it. Do you, do you think that they are developing antibodies? Do you think that it's having the intended effect of creating good little anti-racists, quote-unquote anti-racists and stuff? Or do you think that there's a spark of rebellion already in the works there? I think it's both. From what I, you know, what I hear, there's a lot of preference falsification going on. What do you students mean? Students have, well, students have said they're learning, you know, obviously my data is, the sample is, you know, that I'm getting. I have students that have approached me and what they're saying is I really asked them to try to be as, as empirical as possible given the situation, but they're saying like, you know, over 50%, maybe a little bit more of the boys are falsifying their allegiance to wokeness or intersectional thinking. Um, and then, uh, you know, there's a gender gap. So a lot more of the girls are going along with it and true believers. Um, so with that, that's hopeful, but also, uh, you know, disturbing because you've got, you've got a generation of kids. A lot of them are just learning how to lie and how to hide and how to get through. And that has a corrosive effect on their spirit, if you know. Um, hmm. I think that it's, uh, you know, there are some, there, there's a handful of, of standout kids that are open about their doubts about this orthodoxy, this new orthodoxy. Um, but they're very few and far between. And the punishment is very severe. And so is the threat of punishment if you're watching your authority figures getting taken out for simply questioning it, mm -hmm. challenging it. Yeah. But I mean, I think that is not the biggest fear. The greatest fear is probably the social probrium that would result mm -hmm. from, you know, people thinking you're a racist if you don't buy into the idea of toxic whiteness being everywhere or, you know, whatever the, the extreme expo, you know, the exponent of this thinking is currently. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a lot of, fear about social exclusion and and losing friends like for adults but yeah and also you know from teachers there's a fear that they can sabotage the school can sabotage your application there are just so many things that you have to worry about as a student um you could get you know you don't want teachers you don't want to get on the bad side of your teachers mm -hmm. for one thing so there's a lot of pressure and uh yeah, so I've, I've, I feel for students in that situation, for sure. And you said you're doing a lot of volunteer work. And I guess this is, uh, you're, you're working with FAIR, Foundation of... Yeah, the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. Of racism, and, or, and racism. In meditating on that and delving into that, and then also publishing uh, that piece on Barry Weiss's Substack and then receiving a lot of input 
where where do you where do you think you want to put your energies? Where do you think that if you want to go forward and continue to fight this or to try to correct the culture in some way against intolerance and racism, where do you think is what what kind of age group or cohort do you think you want to focus on? And then what do you think is the best thing to do for you know whatever age group that you want to focus on? Well, I'd like to one of the projects I really want to work on is a student guide written by students for students and to you know help um, edit that and help work with students who are currently in high school so that they can give advice to their peers on you know if you if you want to doubt this or challenge this orthodoxy this CRT based DEI and anti-racism how can you do it in a way that how can you be brave how can you be smart how can you um, approach this place where you can express your conscience without, you know, losing your mind and, and blurting out stuff and, and raging against the machine in a way that would be counterproductive to your, you know, to you. Uh, I think that students could really benefit from the advice of, of students who I have been in touch with that have been able to st stand out, stand up and haven't, and been able to maintain their social status doing it. Hmm. Um, so they're popular kids. They're from all different backgrounds. So, you know, BIPOC, Latin, Latinx, white, whatever. They're, there's a group of students I'm in touch with. And to have them work together on this guide and talk about um, how they accomplished that really remarkable feat, um, I think would be helpful. What are some of the themes that you see in in that? And is it replicable? Is is it like a personality trait, or is it? It may, you know, I think that has a lot principles. to do with it. We're talking about both. I mean, you're talking about a way of being in the world. Yeah. Uh, it's an ontological question. How do I be in the world when the world is requiring me to believe and profess certain things that I don't? Or conceal certain things that I don't want to conceal. How do I exist? What is, it's an existential question, really. Like, and to the extent that these students, who I think, are very knowledgeable and, and you know intuitive about it, how can they articulate that those strategies for, for students that find themselves really at the loss and hiding, um, hiding under a bushel basket because they fear the consequences and so on. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. In the communist regimes, uh, at least in Eastern European communist regimes, I've read some into that. And like a lot of people were crushed. You said it's soul crushing to be under that where you can't really think and you're always watching out and you're always watching what other people are saying and you could be ratting on them or they could be ratting on you. And there's this huge stack of the antithesis of freedom of thought. And I, I even think freedom of joy, but also the, there's this ad adaptation that happens with language and with art where things start becoming dual meaning. Like there's a way of, uh, that people start speaking where there's a, there's a meaning that they're hiding, bundling in to get through the sensors and stuff. And mm -hmm. I don't want to romanticize that at all, but that might be a boon in a, in a certain respect for certain people, but I don't know. What do you think? Like in aggregate, it's a terrible thing uh, to, to live in a repressive culture, something that's completely alien to me growing up as a Gen Xer. 
like where we we were required to push the envelope in yeah every way. me too i'm so grateful i grew up when i did god um you know i i think that there that's definitely part of it that's a that's that's a, that is a strategy that's available sub communicating on one level while you're saying one thing publicly you know but it's very hard to do that because the critical lens everyone's so attuned to the thing mm-hmm. that was going to out you as being not you know problematic or whatever so you know if you have and some of these meetings with students you'll have you'll have a student that says well i you know i am anti racist and i'm i'm doing the work but i think it's important to have you know, a, a, a diversity of views. Well, that person's already like they've outed themselves. So you can't really. It's very hard to subcommunicate when the entire critical theory is about scrutiny, right? So the entire theory is tuned to like you got to notice just the thing that makes you different than the theory, and and then pounce. And you know, yeah, yeah, it's hard. That's that's exactly what happened to Brett Weinstein. Uh, I've told this story before, but when the protests were going on, I was on campus and a co-student of mine uh, came up to me with a pile of his emails and said, these are Brett's emails. I know he's a racist, but I cannot find them. It's coded. He's really good at hiding his racism, you know? Yeah. So when you're up against that, (laughs) what can you possibly do? Yeah. It's a... Yeah, no, it's teaching people to be suspicious, resentful, paranoid, and really go over your stuff with a fine-tooth comb to find just the symptom. Hmm. Are you able to to see through that lens and then put it back on the critical lens? Oh, yeah. No, I can't stop seeing through that lens. It's infected you. Yeah, it's in there. It's in there. And and whenever I have a thought, immediately I I feel the other thought that's like, what would a person who's who has that mindset, what would they say about what I'm saying? Do you do that too? Where you just can't help it? You well, can't help it. Yeah, I can't really it. enjoy media. I have to analyze it through yeah. an intersectional lens all the time. And then I have yeah, to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> how do you like it, white man? You know, how do you like it, cis, white, het, man? Whatever, like that thing, that that thing is like part of my brain now. Hmm. Wait, you know, and, when, when did you, when did that start? When were you first aware of that? long time ago like this happened in it, the inquisitor uh, in the eight yeah the inquisitor uh oh, the i got the i got yeah because you know already i grew up in a very progressive town i think new york okay. is a very progressive town because of academics and very left liberal place mm. and so when you know feminism was even though she, i was still gen x and there was punk rock and stuff like those ideas started to percolate through the through our culture yeah, a lot earlier than some places. PC thing in the nineties. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so yeah, I went to a large public high school. They're all different cliques, sort of like Breakfast Club, you know. But the 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 faculty brat cohort that I was in were very progressive, and um, you know, so I definitely felt. You know, and it's funny, there was a place, there was already like a, a place in my brain so, because from Catholic school, you get a lot of Catholic guilt and so on. And so you could just plug in, you know, a woke guilt in your brain and it kind of fits in that same slot. Uh, and it's just running a different program, but it's got like all the same hooks. The APIs are are the same almost. Yeah. Yeah, um, well, D'Angelo is thoroughly Catholic. 
Oh, oh, really? Yeah, okay, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And she says, "Oh, this isn't this isn't Catholic guilt. It's like it's totally Catholic guilt. The mm. whole thing. It's just like you just retooled it." Oh, that um, makes sense. Okay, yeah. Um, how did you adapt to that yourself? If you can put yourself back into running that program at an early age, like what parameters did that put on your, uh, I guess, personality and your creativity and your ambition? Uh, it was a real. It was a real squelcher. I mean, it was a real envelope, like in an audio sense, like it really flattened the frequencies and kind of compressed me and made me, I had a lot of, I had a lot of energy and spirit that was bottled up and trying and I resisted it and it created a lot of anger. You know, it was like incel kind of thing hmm. happening underneath the, the public professions of, you know, alignment with these with these left liberal ideas. And so I think um, that really wasn't healthy. That kind of um, crimped my, crimped my style in some, in a lot of contexts. Cause I was trying to be like a good male, you know, like a, a, a male, a sensitive male, the ally, a male thoughtful, feminist. the ally, exactly. The, the, yeah, but that really, you know, that's not that's not that the funny thing is like when you're growing up you realize later that okay that's not actually a bad thing if you know who you are it can be okay but if you don't really have a, a strong identity like i didn't really have a strong identity even into my 20s and so on like it can be difficult cuz you're you're hiding you're i'm hiding who i am in a lot of ways and kind of overlaying these mental superego programs that are trying to please people and trying to find out, you know, if they can tell me who I am and running around and it's, it's kind of a mess. So by identity, you mean like an ego self or a locus of agency of uh, a strong yeah. sense of self. Then. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And just to compare and contrast that to the intersectional identity packet, which would make you a white, cis, heterosexual, et cetera, male, Catholic, blah, mm -hmm. blah, blah. I don't know what your class is. Do you think you were between, you had the semblance of an identity that was created out of all these identities or, or are, are you, you say patterns of behavior and stuff like that. I just want to compare and contrast that to how yeah, I think is used right now. I think it's, you know, identity is such an interesting problem and the authenticity of identity and the way that yeah. that's playing out now in these schools and um yeah i mean i didn't i was always had an ambivalent relationship to my social identity why all of those categories you just mentioned white cis male blah blah it was cis wasn't a thing at the time but just yeah. white male and blah um that i really didn't feel that that i felt that those were inauthentic things but i was being told that they were authentic and that who i was was actually a denial of that authenticity and that i had to accept these things and i just felt uh you know it was all all messed up um, that sounds really stressful but i really i really did feel like i if you if you push me i would have kind of burst out in a kind of autistic rage in the sense that like sorry to any you know, real autistic people out there. But I, I, I heard autistic kind of, at first. But that's oh, oh, autistic. Yeah. I, I don't know. Um, and, and that I would want to, I would just say like, I am a blazing 
fire of energy, you know, like you can't, you know, yeah. all of these things, these names you put on I me, mean, I don't, you know, they mean nothing to me. Like, yeah. so I think that's, uh, it's something that, you know, it takes a while to come to terms with that. Yeah. How did you shed that not sense of self? What was the, like, the the lines of identity making or finding or was it a discovery? Mm -hmm. Was it an invention? Was it reinvention? Did you just need to die a few times in the spiritual sense to? Yeah. I mean, I was in despair many times. Uh, and then I talked about in the Jordan Peterson interview, I talked about the, the most recent incarnation, which was, uh, you know, I really, I was, I was at the end of my rope really. Uh, and then I, thought back on when was the last time I experienced any sort of joy or connection with the human race. And it was through tutoring. And then that I, I kind of took a shot in the dark. I threw a dart on a board and, you know, I was just like, well, okay, education. I'm also interested in psychology. What's education. Is there an education and psychology thing? And it was a degree in educational psychology. I just Googled it. Uh, oh my God, there's a, there's a program at Hunter college. I can go there. I can apply there. I have to do this or I'm going to, end it all it was really just like an either this or that and uh once i i took me a while to follow through with that but when i did i was back in school i was enjoying being in school i really liked having friends and a per you know that gave me a purpose and then from that i went on to teaching and started teaching at grace church school and really enjoyed the richness of experience of teaching children and having you know every day was new and different and the kids were always new and different and uh it was just something i you know i could do till till i retire till the till till the end you know um and and get enjoyment out of it i had had other jobs that i was bored within three or four years but this one you know up to last year i was really and this year too even though in a pandemic without this other thing impinging on it um i i would be very happy to teach where did the that sense of identity reside in that time? And I wonder if having had a ambiguous relationship to your sense of self has given you actually flexibility to adapt as a teacher to a bunch of different selves. You think that that? Yeah, I mean, you... I, I had to, it was an invention. I had to reinvent myself. I was not very good the first few years. I was not able to multitask and and react to children very well. The chaos really push my buttons and I didn't have a good, I mean, I, I, my template for an authority figure was, you know, um, a misunderstanding of, of what I thought my father was and being extremely hmm. authoritarian. And I, you know, the, I remember trying to insist that the kids do something and, you know, pounding the desk and they would just laugh at me, right. Because they were whatever, like they were the ones in charge. I had no power. You know, I can't, you can't just get someone to do something by saying, you know, do it. No. Um, so you had to find, I had to invent and learn from my, from my colleagues, like how to construct a functional, I, you know, persona. a performance. Yeah. A persona really that worked and it, and I'm still, it's still a work in progress. I'm still working on it, but I kind of got better at it and it was totally trial and error. I, I, I was trying to do what worked. Essentially, I didn't have, um, didn't really have a, 
have a have a, a blueprint for it. Did, how big were your classes at Grace? Oh, wonderfully small. Like, you know, you don't want them too small, but like yeah. nine to twenty. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, so very small, and you could really spend a lot of time. If people had questions, you could really, and they were long classes, like eighty-minute classes before the pandemic. They got cut down to sixty, but longer. Oh wow! Sessions, you can go deep on a concept. You can take more questions. Um. So it it really is. Um, it really was a wonderful experience teaching. And you were you were teaching math. Math, yeah. Maths. Algebra two and calculus. Maths. Okay. Maths. As the British say. Yeah. How do you keep uh, that interesting for 80 minutes? I always felt class ended early. I always felt like, oh, we didn't get to that thing, you know? Um, huh. Now, I, I, of course, the kids, if you ask the kids, they're probably going to say, yeah. <laughs> How do you keep that interesting? I don't know. <laughs> you probably should have kept it interesting for me. So I don't hmm. know. But well, I felt well, like it was, I wasn't too bad. Were you kind of mathematical for a while? Like, how did you stumble on that? And in high what school, makes you I love, jazzed I love about math. That? Okay, why? Yeah, I mean, I was I I just liked, um, I liked the beauty of it. I remember really hmm. loving calculus. I had a great calculus teacher. I think he's still teaching. He's just a wonderful person who made calculus you know, come to life for me. And, um, I don't know anything beyond calculus. I don't know any advanced math. I don't know linear algebra. I bought some books on it, but I never had the patience to learn it. Hmm. Um, I'm maybe not, you need an 80, 80 minute course. Yeah. Maybe I need, I need that. Um, Master but yeah. Huh. Um, but I, I, you know, I liked, I just love the relationship between, you know, the derivative and the antiderivative and the area under the curve and the slope and the way it all fits together. And it's just like a beautiful, amazing, co- like, symmetry there. And it's just, you yeah. know, the whole thing is just, it's just remarkable how it all fits together. And, and the job is to get that somehow into the kids' heads, right? Yeah, um, it's hard because you have to cover a certain amount of content and you can't always hook everyone. Um, yeah. But if you, if you hook and if you can hook, you know, if you can hook some kids and get them interested in it and kind of convey the magic of it, because, you know, it's, I think it is really wonderful and magical. Um, then it can, you can make an impact or you could, you know, and there are kids that math isn't their thing and that's okay. You know, I'm not going to, push it on them. Some of them just went like, I just need to get a B minus. I just need to get it. You know, okay, fine. I'll help you. You know, let's make some time, you know, let's try to get through these problems. And, um, and that's okay. There's this, sorry, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. There's this, uh, a derivative of the diversity, equity, inclusion package is uh, cultural competency. They've developed a lot in these teaching schools. They've developed a lot of tools for uh, teachers to adapt material to different, quote-unquote, cultures. I don't mm-hmm. know if you can adapt it to a race. Have you, were you, did you find anything useful in that? 
in translating things or identifying cultures? Like, to what degree is the DEI stuff salvageable and not toxic and useful and actually uh, boosts the education experience for everybody involved? What are some of the things that you think are worth preserving? Oh, you know, I think, yeah, there's nothing wrong with talking about how math is a global achievement, really. I mean, and there are, um, you know, like, you know, the... Chinese calculated pi to the number of digits based on making like a thousand side polygon or something and, and talking and, and really showing that this is not a white male Western achievement. I mean, that's okay because it's totally real. Um, and I have no problem with working in uh, the history of mathematics uh, in a way that, that relates to that and is representational um, to that extent. And that's, that's all good. Um, you know, where it fits, I mean... You know, you know, you know, can't. Really, it doesn't work if it's not true, or you're trying to shoehorn something in that is, that is not relevant. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has to fit with uh, with the material. Like you wouldn't, I wouldn't turn a math class into an, you know, an, an exploration of ethnic discoveries. It would be like, okay, let's fit, let's connect this this unit that we're doing now to to something that was discovered that led to that. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it has to serve the math, not the other way around. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we redid our, our um, department guidelines in a self-study to include a commitment to do that kind of thing. I didn't do much of it, frankly, and I kind of wanted to. I mean, I kind of would like to. Uh, and in general, that CRT-informed DEI and anti-racism didn't really touch my teaching, my math teaching. Um, it wasn't about what was happening to my curriculum or my course courses. It was more about watching how the, the school's programming was affecting the kids in other courses and other classes. Such as what? Such as, you know, we would have special seminars, workshops devoted to anti-racism or DEI, and also um, meetings devoted to it, uh, week-long sessions. Uh, I was, you know, hearing about how it was impacting kids in their history and English classes, 6019 project being taught exclusively, you know, without without any criticism of it, Hmm. um, being... Uh, something that they, you know, felt they could express. I mean, I, I don't know, honestly, I'm just going by reports. So I wasn't mm-hmm. in those classes, but, you know, looking at how it was being pushed and how kids were being induced to identify, and it was really an ontological, I had a problem with what was happening to the kids at an ontological level. Like what is meant to be in the world? Who are you? I am white. Right. And getting the kids to to see themselves how other people see them and prioritizing that identity over their essential what I, what I feel is important for identity development, which is to be yourself and who you are as a person of conscience in the world. And that being what what is the most important thing about being a human being, mm-hmm. um, a person of conscience. Yeah, and and speaking to um, being able to transcend all these social categories, which 
are operative in the world. They do inform bias and, and racism and, and how people see you, but you are not how people see you. And I think teaching children to identify with how other people see you is, um, is a seduction. Like in the old, in the utter, in the, in the etymological sense of the word seduction. Which is? So sed- seduce, the, 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 the root of that word is duce, like from the Italian, right? Like il duce Mussolini, right? So it means a lead to lead. Okay. So seduce means to lead away or to, or, or to take away or Cause lead to off yeah. to stray, right? So as opposed to education, the root verb of education is... Educe. Educe, right. So educe is to lead out, to draw forth, to bring out the child and to show and to have him express his or her true self and to, and to, to joy in that discovery, right? To follow the path of curiosity and interest and to reveal that revelation of the self. That's how I, I see education, mm-hmm. not an installing or delivery of programming, but a, a, a drawing forth of, you know, it's sort of the old dictum, know thyself. Well, how do you know yourself? You, you have a teacher that helps you to know yourself. You, you, you perform the, it's an art. Teaching is an art that draws a child forth. Um, not to lead to some particular sense of themselves, which is prepackaged and 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 labeled hmm. for them to adopt, but to like, okay, who are you? You te- you tell me who you are, right? Um, or you find out for yourself, and you don't even have to tell me who you are. Uh, so seduction and and you know eduction are these two things, and one leads to an inauthentic place, and one is an authentic place as an, hmm. it's an authentic place. And, um, you know, I was seeing children being led into an inauthentic place with these group being told to identify with group identities based on how other people saw them and being told that that was actually their authentic identity and that they were, this was a journey of discovery that they were being revealed to them that this is who you are. Right. And this is who you are in the world because the world sees you this way. And therefore that's, that's, you have to acknowledge it. You have to identify with it as a means to, you know, function and navigate in the world. And um, I, think that that, I think that that's wrong. It's not just inauthentic, it's impersonal. It's like the way in which an institution would look at people as just these categories mm-hmm. to be shuffled around. It's a very... I I use the word satanic in a very specific form, but it's very materialistic. It's very the lowest level of a human being and reducing Mm -hmm. or, or causing that lowest level to be the highest level, which I guess it is according to an institution or in court, according to certain ways of viewing the world. Once you prioritize, once you prioritize those lowest denominators of the self, you can actually see what happens to society when that starts to to happen. And I don't think it is joyous. I haven't seen it be joyous. It's joyous for the victor in that moment, but it never lasts. But there's a performance of joy, like the joy. Well, okay, just to back up, like, I agree with you. I think that what's happening is that these group categories, which seem so, you know, the lowest level of identification and, and, you know, crude and, and, but, you know, banal and all these things, they're infused with a political meaning which is from, you know, Crenshaw and like from a person who happens to be black to I am black, right? So that is given, that is 
and there's a whole history of revolution and meaning and and transcendence of opposition to who you are that's that's tied up with that so it's infused with this wonderful hmm. rich history of rebellion and triumph and the great lead you know and so that's where i think that that's the meaning that's being used to lead people into it because not you get to participate in the grand narrative of history and who doesn't who wouldn't who would shy away from that from that meaning and so in you know investing and and drawing kids into that project that hmm. historicist project is is very seductive rather hegelian yeah well that's they you know these are activists teachers and scholars that want to let's see history as an unfolding through conflict of you know their job is to sort of manifest the apotheosis of of our deliverance right and that means pushing certain voices to the fore and those voices are the voices of history of course they have to say the right things uh they have to be categorically derived voices like you have mm. to have a black voice that's politically black you can't have a black voice that has white supremacy right exactly attached to it um so or you know internalized white supremacy so you so you know to be white in a responsible way means to um recognize that your denial of whiteness is inauthentic and that to be authentic to be authentic according to them which means to is to accept your whiteness if you if i if i denied my whiteness and said well actually i'm italian english and french um well that would be inauthentic to them so there's a there's a mirror image of seduction happening with with white people um but it's all seduction you said earlier that you had that script running in your head and i know that too cuz i was at evergreen and i adopted it and what caused you to disidentify with it or what caused you personally to run it, let it run its course or not allow it to be the front and center? Why is it no longer the front and center? Was it ever the front and center? What, what made it compatible for you if it ever was and what made it incompatible with you if it isn't? I started to have real doubts about it. I mean, in starting maybe four or five years ago, um, I started to see the influence it was having on children and their development and watching kids come in in ninth grade and becoming more resentful and you know with the very things that were supposed to empower them having the opposite effect and making them suspicious yeah. and resentful and you know adopting an identity that was superficially empowering but actually not seeing it pay off for them um, both you know minorities and underserved populations are you know under-resourced and and white people black people I, to the extent that kids adopted that ideology they were hurt by it and the kids that didn't adopt it were actually had better success outcomes so you know of course this is not this is not scientific research this yeah. is just qualitatively watching what's going on yeah. um uh and and seeing it, seeing it happen and thinking there's something not working here and then i started you know watching some 
Uh-oh. Intellectual, Jordan Peterson. Yeah, I know. I went, you know, <laughs> getting getting the red pill. Uh, but, you know, um, and the fitting the pieces together, yeah. reading things that um, were not on the list. Is there like a, a control or somebody that that was with you that you knew that wasn't seeing this or ignoring it? How do you not see that? Can you put yourself um, I, in the head I, of somebody would, who doesn't see that? I would talk to colleagues about it. And, you know, privately, they would say, yeah, you know, I, I kind of see that. Or, um, But I would talk to my mom about it, actually. My mother was someone that I always fought with. I mean, I really made her life tough. Um, I fought with my parents uh, relentlessly through my, you know, 20s and 30s about these issues. And uh, as it started to change me, I was able to reconnect with my mother before she passed. And that was really nice. Um, And she would, uh, we'd have long conversations about it. And uh, What, what did she see? Okay. You know, she she had always warned that these ideas were were destructive to society and also harmful to to the kids. I think when I she used to tell me that you know Derrida ruined your life. Derrida Derrida changed you. Where, where's the Paul I used to know? What happened to you? Um, and there was a lot of truth to that. You know the. I'd say postmodernism kind of melted my brain uh, in undergrad in a lot of ways. Um, me too, but it was yeah. fun while it lasted. What What yeah, was it about? It was fun while it lasted, right? It's <laughs> a was thrill. It a paradox. The turning, yeah. you know, that something could mean the opposite or that you can undermine yeah. a text with just a little dangling thread and that, you know, what does it mean to even be if you have to describe being in terms of being? Um, yeah. The invisible net of 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 signifiers, and underneath it, there's an abyss, and you know, all of these amazing ways of looking at being as a function of language. And if you if you that's really, I think, the first seduction okay. is that being is is a linguistic phenomenon. And if yes. you are a text, if you are if you Benjamin Boyce are an intersection of texts, then you your essence, your romantic essence of transcending that is. Uh, of, of you know, and is just an imaginary thing, and it's you are you know the just right. The, the, whenever you say that a human being is just something, you've already lost the game. You've already impoverished your yourself, in my opinion. Like that's you're just a clump of cells. You're just a biological this. You're just you're just some signifiers on a page. You're just your context, whatever it is. Okay, um, you've diminished, and you have you have taken the bite of the apple at that point and you're not mm-hmm. going to be, you're not going to be yourself because yourself is always has to be. Now, maybe it all fits together in some way. Maybe, maybe the abyss is not an abyss. Maybe the abyss is a, is a suffusion of spirit and that we, you know, it can blast through the net and then you can find that's how, that's what creativity is. Uh, but when I was going through that, I was, I was a frustrated creator, I guess. And I wanted to create through interpretation and uh, it was just a, it was just compensatory behavior for not being able to write or, or be the genius I thought I was or whatever, whatever that story was. Um, 
was there was, no umbilical cord, no tether? How how would one? How did you dangle over the abyss without not just dangling? But yeah, like it was all things that people who I pushed away, like my family, that were just keeping me tethered without me okay. really yeah. admitting or caring. Frankly, like not realizing how important family was and friends were and taking them for granted and and you know taking advantage of them and just not being a you know but all of the uh, but i felt like all these i think now like all these people were trying to help me and i never i never acknowledged it i never because i couldn't i was just obsessed with other problems and did social issues come in to give you purpose out there? Or were they temptations to have a grounding? Because that, in one yeah, critique oh, yeah, of yeah. postmodernism, how it becomes uh, part of what we're seeing now is that once you have, once you strip all meaning, then you can give, you can rest meaning within oppression. That that right. becomes the grounding. Was that something that? Yeah, was I mean, I, I I I felt like uh, I aligned with a, with causes, and I I was very. I was a LARPing, I was LARPing on radical stances and um, it's funny, there was like a friend of mine uh, who, you know, we were working with this environmental activist uh, fellow who recently reached out to me actually. Um, and I remember him talking about letter writing and, and protesting and I was just like, call me when you want to throw a bomb. You know, like I, I didn't know anything about bombs. Like I, that wasn't. I mean, I was. It was. It was a ridiculous posture. Mm-hmm. But you know, the the wanting to throw a bomb, the wanting to destroy as an act of definition, mm-hmm. and you know, that was something I was very drawn to. Did you get to do that creatively somehow? Is there like a like no. a, a Hyundai out there in, in Death Valley that you got to enact your bomb throwing? <laughs> No, no, I, I was I, I was probably too scared or timid to actually even mm-hmm. do that. But um I I wrote a lot of things. I wrote a lot of very violent, disturbing things that Well like uh short stories, poems, uh rants. Yeah, I mean just from the rants kind of things. That yeah. kind of stuff, rants and uh things that I would read later and be disgusted with and hmm. Disgusted with aesthetically or ethically? Was there an aesthetic refinement that you were undergoing? I I was really disgusted with myself that I would write this thing and and that it it wouldn't do any good in the world. And who would read this and why would that help them? Hmm. You know, like, what is the point of all that? What is the point of writing this thing that I felt I needed to get on the page when, you know, it's not going to do any good for anyone? Um so like I don't know I think maybe like the judging self had still had some good in him. Hmm. There's for me like my story aligns with yours in a lot of ways and I I sped up through my postmodern crisis I took it to the limit and I was done by 24 and I was very lucky to find something that gave me meaning which was to serve other people uh, in the capacity of a preschool teacher and learning that and that is what for me made me really realize that the only value in a work of art is what 
it means to other people. The value is not in what I invest in it. The value is in how I can elicit the value from other people into it. And, and uh, it still took me years and years and years. I don't think I'm done yet with uh, at least artistically transcending uh, the ego in that way. Um, but it, it's all based on, you know, the salvation for me was service in a way. That's it's great. Everything contingent on that. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. You, that seems like the mentor uh, solution that you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. No, I feel like I, that was a, I mean, that aligns with my experience much later in life around teaching. I think that, that, that feeling of having a value for other people and, and that rewarding the reward of that relationship and, and, you know, having to invent a persona that, that was functional and, you know, had that element of service to it is, you know, that changed a lot. And it was in the context of me just trying to do a good job. Um, hmm. you know, um, just get up in the morning and, and, and not regret what I did that day. Hmm. Do you think he, uh, this, I don't know how to phrase this. I, I want to like suck a couple proverbs out of you somehow. Like when, when distilling your experience and it seems like your, your story that you've, uh, you're sharing here and then that you shared with Jordan Peterson is a very wayward story for quite a long time. You were able to pull off the wayward kind of, uh, the, the prodigal, uh, adventure for a long time. I could only do it for so many years. I didn't have the stamina. Um, but I think that there's a lot of wisdom there once it starts to be processed. And, and once, once you come back to society and say, okay, I'm a part of society, you didn't waste that time. You gain skills in being in that area. I just wonder how, to what extent you're able to empathize with people in that state. And if you have insight into how to reach those people, or if the question is that everybody has to come to it, come back on their own, and there's no way that you could solve that for anybody there's just people who are going to go on that journey and i don't seduction i don't, I, I wish there was i mean i think there must be i think that's a a really great question to ask and um when i think about myself if i met myself today would i like myself i wouldn't even i wouldn't be able to connect with myself i don't think i think it would be very difficult um, like if I was going to give advice to myself in that state, um, I feel like whatever I offered that person, he would just pour acid on it. And, you know, that doesn't mean that, I mean, that's just my experience. If I think about anyone else who's going through the similar thing, hmm. um, I think when I think about the people that tried to help me in that place, um, and finding the thread out of it, it was the patient. You know, I would, I would, people would try to talk to me and then later, you know, maybe even months or years later, I'd remember a fragment of something someone said to me and, and I would sort of see, I would see the value of it that I wouldn't just sort of crush and throw away in a pile of nihilistic, you know, trash. Um, and then I would, I would be like, you know, actually, yeah. And I would, it would, it would keep me going. Um, so you are into composting. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, nihilistic from the flowers of Nihilon. Yeah, I don't know what. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, to anyone who's in that state, you know, I, I, uh, I hope that you know. I hope they. I, I wish them. I don't know what I could do. I don't know. I don't know how I could connect there. But that's a really great question to ask. On the Peterson interview, you said that you're doing writing on and off. Where's your writing at now? It, um, I, I how's that? Try to take notes in the morning. The article in on Weiss's Substack was just great. I could just hear a really great voice. I mean, on a on a really true level, you were operating in a, from a great space. So I'm just wondering how. Thanks. Yeah, I mean that that they. I had a good editor, and I had written a lot of things leading up to that that were um, mm. pretty loopy. Um, and I, I, uh, I really needed people at Fair, like Barry, to help you know really take the hatchet to it. And then I did multiple drafts after that, and I had I had probably three times as many things I could have talked about, and that I did mm-hmm. talk about that I cut out of it just to make it you know, easy, easier, uh, shorter, maybe more impactful. So, um, I, uh, yeah, I don't that coming down the pipes. You think what's that? Is there more coming down the pipes? Yeah. yeah, I'm working on something. I'm working on something now that I think, uh, you know, is going to be an interesting piece. It's, it kind of plays with that seduction, adduction thing. Yeah. Um, and, um, I, I, I think like authenticity and, and how we teach children is part of it. Um, hmm. And that's so lots authenticity of can be very seductive too. It can be, uh, and speaking as somebody who's been running away from my pretension and never able to outpace it. That yeah. Right. Right. Quest. It's <laughs> so, it's <laughs> such a mother. Like, have you, have you heard the James Lindsay podcast recently about authenticity? We were, we were rapping on that, but I didn't listen to the whole thing. Yeah, no, he's really good. Like he said, there's some, there's some little nugget. Talk about a little nugget of wisdom. Like authenticity is what you are when you're not trying to be something. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, you know, it's very simple. Um, it's like meditating, like try not to have a thought, but you just have to wait through all of the manifestations of thought until you just kind of hmm. stop grabbing at the thing stop grabbing at the persona and then and then waving it around you know or or like making a making a self out of some enthusiasm you have for the self and then and then hanging on to it and presenting it to people as the mm-hmm. thing that will impress it's I think so hard. that's a natural that's a, actually especially in high school that's what you're supposed to do that's what yeah, you yeah. just that's the part that's the stage yeah, yeah. Ego. Out. Um, um, yeah, I, I know. It's so, it's so, uh, it's necessary, I think. You gotta, you gotta do it. Um, but I don't know. I guess you, there's, I guess it's sort of like, uh, I guess it's sort of like to come, I hate this word, like come back to the present, be in the present moment. You know, mm. like, 
<laughs> you know, whatever, whatever you are, just whatever, you know, if, yeah. if you try to react, react to what's happening around you, maybe, uh, I've never been very good at that, but maybe that's the way where you, you just try to react to things that are coming at you in a, in a way that doesn't necessarily, there's not a preordained correspondence to some yeah. huh. self that you think you should react like a, a habit, habitual reaction. I don't know. Yeah, you, the um, I have to say that uh, I, I get uh, this weird kind of post-traumatic stress uh, feeling in when I hear certain stories and what you were talking about about being in that online meeting and the training. Like, I just any sort of anti-racist training, just imagining putting myself back into that place. Like, I just get really stressed out. So that was a very stressful part of the Jordan Peterson podcast, mm. and I, I was just totally amazed that you were able to keep your cool. I don't know how I would keep my cool. I know that I wouldn't act out like I run a channel that does this, that actively breaks down, you know, does the do, does as much postmodern, throws as much postmodernism at, at this stuff as possible to absolutely make it totally pliable. Um, but in the moment in that, and I guess it was a Zoom meeting, but still you have like yeah. the, the leader of it and then all this collective believing like everybody's like supposed to be believing yeah. the same way. You know, you know what? I kind of, I, I think it was contextual because I was at a, you know, I was supposed to be chaperoning a group of kids at the time. We went to the skating rink. Okay. I logged into oh. this meeting because I thought it was supposed to be, it was a mandatory meeting. So I was, was multitasking, which is what you do. So like but thriller is, is playing do. on the, on yeah, the, yeah. Like, so rink. we're wandering around. Bryant Park. I, I have a mask on. It's askew. The sunlight's behind me. I'm looking at this little phone. I can't even see anyone on the phone. It's like a lot of glare, but I'm kind of trying to type in the chat. So I didn't have that experience of like the Panopticon where everyone's looking yeah. at you. If I was at home with all those people, maybe I wouldn't have said a damn word. But it was because it was everyone was shrunken onto this little device and I was feeling you know, just my I was like, oh, you're all just so small in my hand. Yeah, you know? like that kid's in the hall skit, yeah. like I'm squishing your head. I'm yeah, <laughs> there was some of that, I think. that, and I'll, I mean, and I can't imagine what I must have. I mean, I must have looked a little frightening to some of the kids, to be honest. <laughs> it's like, like towering over them. Yeah, yeah, like this guy lumbering this around. big white man with, the, yeah, with the, the, the mask askew. you like, <laughs> like, what is white? What's a white feeling? You know, I'm, and I can, I can, I can see. I mean, I don't think it's harmful. I mean, they said that that was harming people. I'm not harming people, yeah. but it, but I, I could see the comic aspects of my what I must have looked like. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, and I, I think hmm. based on what the facilitator told me later, two days later, there was a meeting about the meeting for for white identifying faculty. There were segregated meetings about to process the segregated meeting. Anyway, she said, you know, she. She said she came to the meeting to her credit and said, you know, I didn't think that what Paul said was antagonistic or you know, I thought I felt his questions were in good faith. He was, you know, and I she said that she decided to sort of spend more time on it because it was it was a chance to have an authentic discussion. Hmm. And, you know, I that was my impression. It was good to hear her say that. Now, she did have qualms about, you know, race, uh, my questioning of race as a you know as a real thing as a true thing which i think that they 
they kind of confuse reality and truth there in an interesting way. But I, my, my point was that why should I identify with a falsehood? If race is a falsehood, why should I identify with it? Um, and that's, that, is the, that is the greatest of heresies. You cannot question, um, you know, race is a social construct. But since racism is real, then we must identify with mm-hmm. it. We must, uh, and we denial, must, denialism of racism is right. the most racist thing. Right, possible. exactly. Yeah. Now, I don't deny racism. But I will deny the truth of race. I will deny the meaning that's that that it has. I mean, I think if you if you define yourself as how other people see you, if 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 racism is the consequence of a lie and a falsehood, well, then to define yourself by a falsehood is 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 a re a recapitulation, a reification of that reification, falsehood. Yeah. So yeah. I, yeah, so I, I took issue with that. That made its way out of the chat. People heard about it. They felt harmed. I mean, they, they got upset. And yeah. and then here you, I am. You attack that worldview. You attack the yeah. ground, the floor of being. They're right, the same. Right. I don't know how Heidegger yes, speaks, but absolutely right. Yeah, that the 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 same, the Dasein, whatever. Um, and. Yeah, that's that is you know from cynical theories doesn't don't they make the point that like that was the that is the nub of that's the hub around which you yeah. you can you can instantiate and give grounding to the postmodern ideas its identity and so you know that to me if I was going to give advice to any intellectual movement to marshal your forces and shoot at that exhaust port on the death star i would say hit identity and never stop and just pound away at it because um if you if you if you blow that up you blow up the whole house of cards and so you know what i my my thinking on this is is you know neither a person who happens to be black nor a person who is black but a person who happens to be seen as black so like you're if you are somebody you are the you are a person you are an individual and that indiv- you don't have to you can you can address bias by you know that other people feel towards you without having to identify as that thing yourself i think we need a deracialization we need a deidentification movement with respect to race in this country that is that to me is mm-hmm. you know i think the way now that's just me one white guy talking but, uh, yeah, well, and you're talking to another white guy, so I'm just compounding yeah. your fragility here. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> as I'm sure, if the right people find that, they've already made that comment before they got sure. to this part. Of, and and me being black wouldn't save me anyway. So why do I, you know, yeah. who cares? No, so you, might as well you know just what, speak what I want right. anyway. So <laughs> it's not like my whiteness is is any worse than my blackness would be if I have, if I have whiteness in me. So. Do you think it's a fallacy to suppose that the identity politic, as it's manifested in critical social justice, identitarian, blah, 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 wokeness, um, was, is that filling a vacuum? And, yeah. and if that is filling a vacuum, do we need to return that to a vacuum? Or do we f- come to terms with what left that vacuum? And what, what is it replacing? Yeah, what so is this that? is this is a great question. Uh, this is such a fantastic question because you know geista geishista, you know the whole Hegelian thing, right? Spirit is replaced by spirit in the world. So you can't you if you if you take that apart, you're just going to leave another another nihilistic thing that people are just going to jump on the next paint by numbers morality 
people need to have that so i think you this is going to be a spiritual war between the ersatz pseudo morality of wokeness and a reconstitution a reconstituted liberal you know like common culture humanity individualism you know all the good things that we talk about mm-hmm. is going to be this is going to be the locus of a new vertical axis of spirit mm-hmm. that's going to re mm-hmm. recreate a reality you know reconstitute a better reality and it's going to be a, you know it's going to be like two columns battling it out like two lightsabers battling it out you, and we're gonna, yeah, just, you, you know, waving you, around. You, and the sparks that fly out from that are going to be the reality we, we live in. Okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. wow. Very THX of you. Um, <laughs> you could hear What it, does that can... look like? <laughs> what, is, what does this reconstituted uh, liberalism look like? Like the uh, orange juice. Back out of the freezer, mix it up with some soda water. There you go. What does it look like? Uh, well, ideally, it would take the, it would take the best. It would be a harmonization of the best of both things. Like um, mm. there is there is value in in you know critical theory. I think there is value in postmodernism. It just needs to have a more productive um, locus around you know the 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 fountain of spirit which would be you know a different would be coming from a different place like a a sort of um classical liberal reconstituted uh you hmm. know geist something that's pouring into okay. the world so um, by geist you mean like a collection of ideas or a gestalt or some sort of yeah like a spirit a spirit of the age like we're yeah, talking spirit about of the age, yeah, yeah. Like something that is a okay. yeah. you know, zeitgeist, something that is a an unnameable transcendent upsurge yeah. of DNA, you know, like, you know, what you talk about the 60s, right? What created all that great music? What created yeah. all that amazing art? Yeah. Uh, a kind of a, something, you know, something, an eruption, yeah. the unseen, you know, the unpredictable, the thing that, the thing that creates. Yeah. Yeah, I feel from time to time the great work would be to lay the ground for that to happen mm-hmm. when it does happen, to precipitate the conditions of that occurring, right? Yeah, yeah. Which would be yeah. education and conversation. Um, but it's not education and conversation itself. It's created out of people having conversations and being educated properly. And then they go forth and, and spark it in some way. Um, mm-hmm. through yeah, art, I, mean, I guess, yeah. Uh, it's a community, it, it's a, Barry Weiss talked about this on a podcast with Megan Kelly. You know, what do we do? Do we, do we try to reinvigorate the hollowed out institutions? Do we try to, do we try to take them over? Do we create new stuff? Mm-hmm. And I'm of the mind that we create new stuff. And you, you do it with, with, you don't do it to create some grand thing. You do it so you can live together in a better way. You and your mm-hmm. friends. Make it happen. You know, just, um, re reform communities that are that make your give your life meaning and make things enjoyable, and then those institutions will come to you, and then you can, and then you know you'll have value to share with the rest of the world. But you got to start small. You got to start. It's got to be an intimate thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it can't just be this grand oh. blueprint. You know, it's, that's not going to work. 
because uh, you don't you don't know what the blueprint is yet. Like no one knows what that's going to look like. But like you said, yeah, have conversations, have productive interactions that spark ideas, and and then good things will come of it. You said in the Peterson podcast that you've had offers to go and teach elsewhere. Do you want to continue teaching? Do you is something else? Uh, do you see the, feel the twitchings of a new new work yeah, here? Yeah, a little bit. Like I'd like to I'd like to keep writing. Um, I'd like to finish another piece. Um, I'd like to tutor. Definitely, tutoring is something I can I can continue those positive experiences and useful s- experiences with. Hmm. Uh, with kids tutoring, um, math, I love to do that. So I think there's a way to construct uh, a meaningful life that maybe is different than what I'm used to. Um, more, more enriching, more rewarding. I'm, I'm see where things will lead, mm-hmm. where I want to go. Where would you like to live in America if you moved? If you had a choice to go anywhere. Or I really you know go the anywhere. world. Like I, I like I like where I am. I like I like okay. where I am. I like my place. I like being in Queens. I like the neighborhood. I like. Yeah. Uh, um, I have fantasies. You know, everyone has been like I'd like to go to the woods or like to go uh, live in the forest or something. But I don't know anything about living in a forest. I don't know how to make a fire. I'm not a. We I'm have not. houses out here in the forest. Just like yeah, right. Yeah. Got a yeah. We even have internet. Do you just dig a hole to poop in, or do you you actually have (laughs) plumbing? Combos, right? So civilized, yeah. No, yeah, we have. uh, Do you live in the woods up there in Washington? Yeah, I'm I'm outside of Olympia, Washington. Yeah, Yeah. I'm on a peninsula. It's very woodsy. It's very woodsy. It's not un. It's not uncivilized. Um, That's beautiful. I I guess. What's the other word for? I don't mean uncivilized, but it's not undeveloped. But it's pretty not too developed so it's just like there's a creek out there and there's a forest back there and i take my cats on walks and that's great yeah yeah i can i can dig it i like the quiet um new york is really intense for me it's just like that that fervor that energy all that yeah uh yeah i know it's a lot and i i um i'm in a kind of a quiet neighborhood not not a very hip neighborhood it's more like lifestyle life not lifestyle someone called it oh okay you know? so it's wow. it's you know we know i got my neighbors in the apartment building and and uh the the little diner on queens boulevard with the with the lunch counter that wraps around and you can just sit and have a conversation with people oh wow it's you know now that now that the you know that we're back to like it's half capacity you can go and, and like sit in this place which which is really friendly and nice and have breakfast have you know a greek omelet with home fries and rye toast greek omelet that's got those very salty cheese chunks in it is yeah the feta omelet? cheese feta cheese chunks feta. with tomato and yeah mm, actually know, that sounds it's really a nice good. nice mm. um hmm. not bad what's for dinner tonight Oh, soup! My wife made some delicious soup. What kind? Yeah, it's Minestrone? like it's had like chicken. It's got like uh, chicken legs in it, and it's got uh, potatoes, carrots. Oh wow! Green beans. 
This it's is like nurturing. More pepper, pepper, more pepper than usual too. It's good. I don't have to put the hot sauce in it. She doesn't like when I put the hot sauce in it because okay. So you she know. met you halfway with the peppercorns. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't like when she puts mayonnaise on bread either, but you know, I, we let her do that. So oh, like mayonnaise, peanut butter kind of thing, or just mayonnaise? No, it's like and mayonnaise on lunch and meat. She likes to put mayonnaise on um, bread and eat it. Oh, without a meat, yeah, lunch and meat. Oh. Anything. I have a problem. I just have a. I have an issue with mayonnaise. It's, That's kind of an irrational fear of uh, it oozes me out. Mayophobic. I don't, I don't like. Um, I don't like things that are. Vinegary, slimy, creamy. I like vinegar, egg. but not like certain certain textures that oh, okay. yeah. give me problems. I hate cauliflower. Issues. I'll tell you about that. Oh yeah, is it just because it's bland, or just the feeling of the? It's like the florets like, in your mouth. It's like some sort of like uh, very. It's like some sort of traitorous broccoli. Ah yeah, I don't know. It is a traitor of. It is like, uh, yeah, it's like the gosh, white, the white man of it. broccoli, you know, <laughs> it's, it has toxic whiteness. It's broccoli with toxic whiteness in it. It is. I, I, I'm with you. I definitely prefer a nice broccoli. The fibrousness of the broccoli, the, yeah. it's got some space you know. between the, the dangly leaf buds or whatever they are. I don't even yeah. know what it is. Is it a flower or is it like a million flowers all jammed together? I don't know. You need, I would need, you need to have like a botanist. Yeah weigh in on it or uh, I should go over to your compost and see if there's any I should ask <laughs> guys what is this like what is this stuff here like I've always wondered I came did I come to the right place can you help me no they would they would just I don't know they'd give me a flyer for some yeah but um for a march yeah how can people support you I guess you're uh, just going to be popping up here and there right now um, I guess uh, you could write to me. I'm, I, I, oh. I read everything. I have a Gmail account. People say I should get Proton Mail because it's more secure, but I, it's too late for that. I mean, I could, Is it too late? I have two emails. I could. I guess I could forward everything. That's so defeatist. It's too late. <laughs> it's too late. <laughs> I'm, You're set uh, in your ways. You can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I, uh, it'd be confusing. Maybe people wouldn't be able to find me anymore if I had to switch okay. my email. Yeah. I don't know. So just give uh, Google all your data. That's fine. Whatever. It's too late now. Great. Great. <laughs> uh, don't send me anything. I mean, I'm the only one that sees the inbox, me and Google. Yeah. Uh, but if you trust Google, yeah. you can trust me. No, it's, I don't know. <laughs> teaching for truth at gmail.com. Then what have people truth. been sending you? Uh, just uh, I've been getting stories. amazing, amazing yeah. things. Like people have sent me... Uh, People send me their artwork. Someone sent me a novel. Some people send me stories about what they're going through. Hmm. Most of them are stories about what they're going through. They're yeah. students, parents, uh, retired teachers, hmm. um, even in, like administrators, like the principal of a, of a middle school, like wrote to me telling me how unhappy he was. Um, things, things are going on across the country and, um, that's Are we reaching a breaking point? I, Will that silent majority continue to be silent? I don't know. I hope so. I don't know enough about history as it happens to be able to make that kind of prediction. All I can say is, uh, you, you know, for try, work your ass off and try to make it happen. You know, like uh, this is what we're. This is where we are. This is our. This is our challenge. This is why we're mm. here. 
let's mm-hmm. do all we can and call to action yeah like like we we have we should be grateful for this right every every we all have everyone has their moment and to make a difference and this is our moment that's what they think too i know right so what are you gonna do just roll over and let them have their moment yeah right just (laughs) make a display of submission and hope that they treat your genitals nicely i mean no i'm not gonna Hmm. do that Mm -mm. no great stand tall Stand up any for, um, any any plugs of uh, great books or uh, works of art or oh, wow. albums that really Gosh, inspire I you? I thought about that more. Um, I know it's kind of a lame uh, on the spot question. You know what? I, I got to say, I've been returning to these lectures by David Milch. If you don't know who David Milch is, he is the he is the writer and producer, I believe, of NYPD Blue. I think that was the show. Really I be wrong about this? Deadwood. On HBO, remember the show Deadwood? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so he gave a series of lectures in 2007 or and during the writer's strike in Los Angeles. There were five lectures that he gave for free in an auditorium. I can remember where. I was visiting my brother in L.A. He took me to these lectures. They were the most fascinating things I had heard. And I, re- you know, I recorded them. They're probably out there on the internet somewhere. I can get them to you. I think that more people wow. need to listen to this because he's a fascinating, fascinating man. He is suffering. I believe, I don't know if he's still with us. He was suffering from Alzheimer's. And um, there was an article written about him recently. Uh, his, his words and his storytelling about his own life and weaving in Kierkegaard and philosophy and art and, and all these different mm-hmm. things. He's just an amazing storyteller. I, I listen to them sometimes and uh, mm. They still affect me. There's great wisdom in them. Mm. I would say, I don't know how to get people to them. I don't know where to even send okay. you, but well, maybe maybe I, would... I can send them to you, and you can yeah, you can have a link on 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 the thing. Okay, so good yeah, watch, I can watch do, them. I can do them. that because yeah. I think they have great they have they're of great import, and they could be of great value to us today. Were they recorded on your Razor phone back in 2007? <laughs> no, I actually, gosh, no, that could they could have been. I had a Razor. I did. It was very slick looking, but uh, yeah, I would. I still. I I remember all the the skills that I never use anymore. Like oh, really? Texting, right? Like you can still text. I never. I didn't get that good at that. I learned but, it. I was pretty good at it, and now, when will I ever do that again? Someday, the the so, QWERTY keyboard will finally uh, be flushed from humanity, and then that's right. there'll be this generation of people who learn that, and then. Maybe there'll be a whole cult of sort of, you know, archaic people that really worship it and are like, well, I only listen to gramophones or vinyl. Like they, they, they <laughs> would just fetishize this thing. <laughs> they only communicate with this thing. Yeah. Eight track fetishizers of lost, lost mediums, media. Mm. Yeah. yeah, no, that's the thing. That's something that Americans would do in their finer, more lazier and less fraught moments. Yeah, remember hipsters and they didn't they weren't political. They just, <laughs> yeah, they just found had, like, these things. Mustaches. Yeah. Imp- it like was a, it was sort, a, sort just... of egg white meringue recipes that they trade <laughs> yeah, on the street right. corners. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Isn't that those are those are happier times. <laughs> I don't even know. Even though I even though I were <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that's that's when all the 
that's all the bad stuff started. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I got sick of it. That's why I left Portland. I just got, it got to Portland and now it's like, okay, now it really went to Portland. That was like 10 years ago. I'm like, I got, I got to get here. It's like, I went here to get away from these people and to retire in my twenties. That's what I wanted to do. And then everybody else started doing that. And I'm like, I, I can't compete in this market. I'm going to go. Yeah. To you got to stay ahead of the, the wave. Well, you're doing great stuff. Kids. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. It's, I really it's like always what, it's always a do. pleasure when somebody pops up on my radar. I'm like, would you like to come on my show? They're like, oh, I know you. I'm like, yes. Yep. Yep. Long time listener, long time fan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, I'm. I hopefully you have a place for your new time fans to to congregate and not just your in- inbox. Maybe you could create a Discord or some sort of channel of your own. It's a thought. Yeah. It's a thought. You're really chill, yeah. I have to say. Of all the conversants, you're on the you're on the more conversing side of my conversations. You're very. That's calm. a good place to be. I'm very honored to be there. You're um, very calm. I'm, that's, uh, that's an honor. That's an honor to be in that place. And uh, and likewise, you're very chill. You're on the much chiller end of the. I mean, nothing against anyone I've talked to, but you're <laughs> you're in the sweet spot too. So. I mean, can I end the recording? I want to ask you. Yeah, question. yeah, sure. Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.